Hi, everyone, and welcome back to House Wine. Uh, I am the host. My name is Rachel. I'm a certified sommelier from Toronto, and I have built my uh, little pillow fort here. And we are going to record an episode tonight, or might not be tonight if you're listening to it, but I'm going to sit here and uh, talk about Cava again for you at your, you know, listening leisure whenever you happen to listen to it. So last week we went through uh, what we called Cava Part One. Uh, And that is to say we did all the stuff that generally makes up Cava. And I say last week, it was actually two weeks ago. I'm sort of starting to, um, or trying to get into a, a better rhythm uh, with podcasting, because I, I say that I upload once a week, but it's lately been more like every other week. So depending on how the next couple of weeks go, uh, I might sort of change my uploading schedule to bi-weekly, uh, just because I find I've been putting a lot more detail into episodes than I ever did before. Not that my episodes weren't detailed before, but since I started the show, um, I've sort of grown into the format, I suppose. And uh, I just takes me a lot longer to get these episodes out um, than it used to. So that's okay, though, because they're uh, sort of meatier, juicier, more researched, more sort of like well uh, thought out episodes, I think. And I hope you guys think too. All to say, though, (laughs) two weeks ago, uh, we did uh, history, uh, we did grapes, uh, and we did some of sort of like the producers and main players. And then we did a little bit of a producer profile on Agusti Torello Mata at the end of the episode, just to sort of get an idea of how some of these houses are who they were founded by and some of the value of the winemaking in Cava. I thought that it was a good note to end on because that house in particular is very rooted in traditions. They only like to use grapes that are indigenous to the region uh, to make what are really some truly excellent uh, Cava wines by Chardonnay. Hello, Shirello. I wrote that in the script, guys. Uh, Nerd alert. Uh, If you don't know much about Cava and you have not yet listened to last week's episode, or two weeks, the previous episode rather, Cava Part 1, then I do recommend listening to that episode first as this is kind of like, or that's kind of like Cava, an introduction. And this episode, we're really going to get deep into what I affectionately call the nerd stuff. Really all the things that you might ever not ever need to know (laughs) about Cava, but that if you are, you know, studying to become a sommelier or you're just curious or maybe you like the sound of my voice uh, when I recite numbers and dates, (laughs) which I will a lot in this episode, then this is the episode for you. It is the companion episode to Cava Part 1, but I'm sure you're all smart people who got that right away from the title that says Cava Part 2. So there's probably no reason to belabor this point. Uh, Listen to Part 1 if we get into this episode and you start to feel lost. Uh, So we're going to pick up kind of where we left off, and that is with geography. And we talked a little bit about this last week, and that is that Cava basically encompasses any traditional method sparkling wine that is made in Spain. There are a few exceptions, but for the most part, that's generally what it is. Now, Of course, to be cava, there are a set of rules, quality and sweetness levels that you must adhere to 
But historically, when cava was made a DO, that's a denomination d'origine, which is the appellation system or part of the appellation system in Spain, it was under pressure to unify the style of wine under one name and to release it from the legal burden of having been called Spanish champagne, or as they sometimes called it in Catalonia, champagne uh, with an X. That's X-A-P-N-A-G-Y. Because they had been calling it uh, champagne or a form of champagne pretty much since the time of its inception, which, to be fair, made perfect sense at the time because the main purpose of this wine at its conception was to be a homegrown substitute for champagne. And all the winemakers who made cava really uh, learned how to make it and had their foundations in champagne and in the champagne region. So because they made the DO to encompass all the areas that were making traditional method sparkling wine at that time, cava can actually be made in seven provinces in Spain total. And these are known as the seven autonomous regions of cava production. I know, seven provinces of Spain, not good enough. Got to be the seven autonomous regions of cava production. And they are as follows. Aragon, uh, the Basque country, sometimes called Pei Vasco, Catalonia, uh, Extremadura, La Rioja, Navarra, and Valencia. However, 95% of all cava is still made in Catalonia. And even more than that, it is made in the subregion of Catalonia called Penedes. Now, this is one of those old world wine things that is a little confusing because Penedes is actually a DO of its own. And they make red wine, white wine, sweet wine, and sparkling wine there. So you know how last week I was talking about those dry white wines that a lot of cava houses make uh, that are still wines made of Shirello or Maccabeo? Well, they are usually labeled and come into the market as wines of Pinedes. If you were to look at a map of the Dio Pinedes, it would be a perfect overlap of the Dio of Cava because they are basically the same thing. <laughs> and I have done this before for certain wine regions, or we've talked about it before. But the main takeaway is that sparkling, most of the sparkling wine that is made in Panetas is cava, providing that it adheres to the rules of cava. And more on that in a second, because Panetas actually has a sparkling wine that is not cava. And we're going to get into that. So the still wines that made that are made here are from the Cava region, but they come labeled as Panetta's Dio. And this is not the only place where we see this happening, and we've actually talked about it before, uh, and it happens all over Europe. The Italians are very bad for it. Spain is not great for it. Uh, the French do it all the time. But we definitely talked about this when we talked about Frangicorta, how Frangicorta is the sparkling wine in that region. And there is a perfectly overlapped Dio Corta Franca that makes the still wines. This is to say that all of the subregions and the growing conditions of Pinedes are the same subregions and the same growing conditions that you're going to find primarily for Cava. If you Google subregions of Cava, not much really comes up except for those seven autonomous zones of Cava. But if you really want to understand what's going on here, then you really have to look at the Panetas region 
and look at maps of Pinedes. So Pinedes, and by extension Cava, has three main subzones for wine growing. It has Alt Pinedes, which is the more mountainous terrain inland uh, with higher elevations. This is where the famous town for Cava production is. That's where you'll find St. Sederni de Noia. And this is also where you'll find the most high-end viticulture happening in terms of cava production. Central Panetas, where you have really uh, more bulk production happening, you have also the most volume coming from here. And that one is just a little bit more southwest. And then you have Baix Panetas. And that's spelled B-A-I-X-X in Spain is that sh sound. Uh, and this is sort of the terrain along the coastline, that very beautiful, uh, like Mediterranean, sandy beaches, um, and has sort of the least amount of production. There's the, the least amount of wine is grown there, more taken up by, you know, resorts and, and tourists. And geographically speaking, aside from the influence of the Mediterranean Ocean, which is huge here, considering that Panetas is right along the coast, there are a few key rivers. Uh, one, arguably the most important one for cava production, is the Anoya River. And I love when this happens because the important town is also named after the important body of water. You kind of kill two birds with one stone. And if you're, you know, doing some serious studying, and if you're doing some serious wine studying, then you will know that at one point, no doubt, you will come to a place in the road where your brain has absorbed all the information it can, and you kind of have to like move things aside for more space. So hence, when something has the same name, it's um, it's a very happy moment. You're like, yeah, I only have to memorize one thing. So Re, the Cava town, is St. Sidernie de Noia, and the river is the Anoya River. I love it. And that's, again, in Altpanetas in the north, and that's where you will find the largest concentration of cava grapes, uh, cava growing, and also the largest can concentration of cava producers. There is also the Foix River, F-O-I-X, which draws almost a barrier between Altpanetas and Baixpanetas. And then, of course, there's the mountain range uh, that make up the mountainous terrain in the Altpanetas. And that is called the Catalan Central Depression. And basically what that is, is it's the foothills to the Pyrenees Mountains. One of the main mountain ranges in France, which kind of crisscross the border of Spain all across southern France. They have quite an effect on viticulture in both countries as the foothills kind of spread out along southern France, along that sort of coastal region into Provence. And then you have the sort of ripple effect down the coast of Spain as well. So at the top of the episode, I mentioned that almost all traditional method wine, traditional method sparkling wine in Spain is cava or is labeled cava. So here's where things get confusing because in Panetas, they also have a different traditional method sparkling wine. Of course, it all has to be concentrated in one place just to make it like extra confusing for us. So we just went over the geography and now we know that Cava and Panetas are the same geographical place in terms of Appalachian. But before we stop talking about Panetas and move straight to the Cava rules, we have to talk about and wrap our heads around uh, the fact that Panetas D.O. is allowed to make 
sort of a kind of Cava sparkling wine, but that is labeled as Pined, as Pinedes Dio and is not technically Cava because it bears the label Pinedes and not Cava. I know. And uh, this wine is called Classic Pinedes. And guys, it is confusing. I feel like I have learned about and read about and studied Classic Pinedes so many times, and it's only really starting to sink in. Remember, I said this was going to be a very uh, nerdy episode, so we're going to really like dive deep here really deep and nerdy, and we're going to leave uh, no stone unturned. So Classic Panetta's is is like a boulder that we're going to upheave. So Classic Panetta's is a new designation. It only started uh, being classified as such in 2014. And it is what the website on Classic Panetta's calls a definition of quality sparkling wine, which is what I thought Cava was. But Classic Panetta's, although it seems like Cava, is also not Cava. So one of the biggest differences is that Cava must be made in the traditional method, and that is the champagne method, where there is a clause in Classic Panetta's that they are allowed to make these wines in the ancestral method. Those are your Petnat-style wines, wines that are made very similarly but the fermentation happens all in one go. That is to say, the wines are made entirely in the same bottle. They're rarely filtered, and you get a more uh, quote-unquote natural style of wine. There's also a lot more regulation on how this wine is aged and how long it can be aged for on lees. Like champagne, the most basic of the classic Panetta's wines must be aged for a minimum of 15 months on their lees before release. And this is slightly longer than the most basic Cava wines, which are a little bit more akin to Cremont in that they only need to age for a minimum of nine months on lees before they're released. Wines that are aged this way in classic Panetta's are called Reserva wines. And there is another twist here. (laughs) They can be aged for longer than 15 months. That is the minimum that you need to qualify to be a Reserva status wine. But there is a numbering system that goes along with this. And the more you age, the higher your number goes on the scale. They rate this based on how long the wines have aged on their lees. So starting with the designation Reserva 3, indicating that the wine has aged for three years on its lees, it goes all the way up to Reserva 15, of which there is very little to none of on the market yet, considering it would need to be aged 15 years to take this designation, and Classic Panetta's was only created eight years ago. So unless there is some producer that was like hoarding Lee's Contact wines in the bottle uh, to meet all the criteria to be a Reserva 15 in anticipation of this upgraded status of Classic Panetta's becoming a designation and was like hoping to label their wines as such. Yeah, there's not there's not a lot of Classic Panetta's Reserva 15s out there. So there are actually also a few other things that make Classic Panetta's different from Cava. These wines have to be 100% organic certified. So the fruit used to make them must come also 100% from Panetta's, which is different from Cava in that even though most of the grapes used to make Cava are from Panetta's, 
they are allowed to blend fruit in from any one of those seven autonomous regions of cava, should they so choose to, for whatever reason. And that reason could be something like a bad vintage with low yields, etc. So like you have a bad vintage in Panetta's and you're like, oh no, I need to get some grapes to like pump up my volume from my buddy in Navarra. Well, in Cava, you're allowed to do that. In Classic Panetta's, you're not. And Classic Panetta's has to meet its own requirements as a Reserva to be a Classic Panetta's. So if it does not (laughs) age for 15 months, then it just gets bumped down to plain old Cava status. Or worse yet, if you can even imagine such a terror, an unclassified sparkling wine from Spain. (gasps) Gasp. The horror. So that is enough about Classic Panetta's. Uh, the appellation that is, or it's not even an appellation, the designation within an appellation that is extremely confusing. Actually, it's more than enough. I'd say likely that's more than anyone will ever need to know or has to know about Classic Panetta's. But there you have it. Like I said, I promised deep cuts. I promised a full nerd out. And here we are. So back to Cava. <laughs> Let's talk about what makes Cava. Cava, aside from the Appalachians and the geographical features that we've already talked about, and the fact that it's different from Classic Panetta's, a wine that feels like it could have just been a layer within the Cava pyramid, but hey, I don't make wine law. Let's start with the aging requirements of Cava. Cava aging designations start from the day of tirage. Uh, because Cava's made in exactly the same way as Champagne, they use a liqueur de tirage to uh, jumpstart that second fermentation in the bottle. So they age from the day that the second fermentation starts. And that is to say that they are designations specific to how long this wine must age on lees. Basic Cava, or sometimes called Cava de Garda, is aged for a minimum of nine months on lees from the day of tirage. Or if I want to anglicize it, tirage, I suppose is how you'd say that. Reserva cava is aged a minimum of 18 months on the lees from the day of tirage. And it used to be 15 months, but they changed this as of the 2021 harvest. So they changed it literally just last year. Most likely because 15 months was the number of months that was co-opted for aging by classic Panetta's, and they just had to be different and change it. So Reserva, now 18 months. Then you have Cava de Garda Superior, which is aged for a minimum of 18 months on the lees from the day of tirage. And then next you have Gran Reserva, which is aged for a minimum of 30 months on the lees, However, this designation can apply to only certain sweetness levels, and those sweetness levels are brute, extra brute, and brute nature. And we're going to talk about sweetness levels. Don't you worry, it's going to happen. And you can also sort of see that there's like a common thread in the way Spain is using its aging terminology. Because, you know, we have, we've talked about priorat and we've talked about Spanish wine law, and we know that. Gran Reserva is an aging designation in uh, Spanish wine law and that they use all over Spain. Um, But here it's being applied completely differently. Reserva and 
Grand Reserva wines, red wines, would be aged much differently than Cava wines. So they're taking this terminology and they're like applying it to a completely different aging process. And I think that can also also be very confusing for people. Lastly, you have sort of like the king, the the creme de la creme of all Cavas. And that is the Cava that ages the longest and is the most akin to a vintage style of champagne. And that is called Cava de Paraje, 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 I think it's how you say it, P-A-R-A-J-E, Calificado, which is also sometimes called, because why would you um, have anything with just one name, sometimes also called Cava de Partage Calificat. And <laughs> that is... Uh, a cava that ages for 36 months on lees from the day of tirage, just like a vintage champagne would. Cava de Paraje is the highest level of cava classification, and it's also new. Uh, this part of the DO rules only came into effect in 2015, though there were definitely people who were uh, making cavas in this style long before that, and who were sort of like pushing for this to become a classification because. They wanted to have this like very high tier, like upper echelon of cava. So as we can see through Paraje and through Classic Panetas, there have been a lot of changes to cava and the sparkling wines of Panetas in the last 10 years. They have really, really been trying to sort of elevate and upmarket their wines. But it's worth noting here that aside from aging qualifications, there are some additional qualifications that must be made for a cava to be considered cava de paraje. So these wines have to be made also in a brut style or a style that is brut nature, meaning that they have to be 12 grams of residual sugar or less per bottle. And we're going to, like I said, go over sweetness levels, all of that in just a minute. But In addition to that, they must be vintage dated, meaning the wines have to be from a single harvest. And even more than that, fruit must come from vines that are a minimum of 10 years old. Additionally, that fruit has to be hand harvested. So you see like price level going up here, right? It's like hand harvested, more money, you know, all of these like extra steps that are making these wines like more quality, more expensive. And there's even more. These cavas must come from a single vineyard. Uh, Chapitalization is prohibited. That means that they are not allowed to add sugar or any kind of sweetener to jumpstart the fermentation process. And they even have a cap on total acidity allowed in the wine at 5.5 grams per liter, which means that these wines are most likely not artificially acidified. I've never, I don't think, brought that up before on the podcast, but an unfortunate consequence of global warming and more common in the wine industry than most of us, even those of us who are like very highly educated about it, um, would think. So why all these stringent regulations? Well, it means that these wines have to adhere to strict quality measures. And I think the same can be said for those classic Panetta's wines, that the more strict quality measures, usually the better the wine, because you really have someone who's been paying very close attention to that product from start to finish. And in general, that is usually what makes a quality product, whether you are, 
you know, uh, doing it for a wine or cheese or a pair of shoes or a purse, attention to detail usually makes something that is worth paying a little bit extra for. And that is absolutely the case when it comes to cava and kind of just sparkling wine in general. But like I said, these Paraje wines have been around for a while. They just finally named it and regulated it in 2015. And the reason it has been happening for so long is that these are some of the exact specifications that you need to make a vintage champagne. And as we know, Cava has aspired almost from the time it was, you know, conceptualized all those years ago to be like champagne. They want nothing more than to be like champagne. So the great thing about Cava de Prahe, and I say this every time I talk about a high quality sparkling wine that has extended lees aging and is not champagne, is that it's a great product and will run you a lot less of a bill than a bottle of vintage champagne. And some of them are really, really good. Gramona makes an excellent Cava de Prahe called Enoteca. And even more sort of like mass producers, like we talked about last episode, like Codornia, have top-line Cava de Parajes. And actually, Codornia is such a large house that they have several different grapes and different plots and different collections of Cava de Parajes, and they call the whole line the Ars Collection, or sorry, Ars Collecta. Now, there's just one more thing that can be used to define Cava, and... I feel like in this episode, we have talked about appellations already, uh, sub-appellations, aging requirements, designations within those aging requirements. So the last thing left, I keep a promise, is sweetness. Sweetness defines really every sparkling wine in the world. And if you work in a restaurant or you are a wine professional, then you have heard the words sort of like ringing in your ear about all wine, really not just sweet wines, but you've heard the phrase, is it dry? And well, that's relative because what is sweet to you may not be sweet to me. But there's one thing that we can all agree on because it is etched into wine law and that is how many grams of residual sugar per liter are allowed per labeling term. And there is no other way to say them or to study them or for that matter think about them than just reciting them off. And they are as follows, starting from the least sweet to the most sweet. So at the very unsweet end of the scale, you have Brut Nature, uh, which is zero to three grams per liter of residual sugar. And then you move on to Extra Brut, which is zero to six grams of residual sugar per liter. And these are all measured in residual grams of sugar per liter. Then you have brut, which can be anywhere from 0 to 12. You have extra dry, sometimes called extra sec, which is 12 to 17 grams of residual sugar per liter. You move on to dry, also sometimes known as sec, which is 17 to 32 grams of residual sugar per liter. Also deceptive because is it dry? at 17 to 32? Maybe not. Uh, Then you have semi-dry, also sometimes called semi-sec, 32 to 50 grams of residual sugar per liter. And then you end with what is officially called sweet, or in Spanish, they say dulce. And that is 
50 plus. So it can be anything as long as it's more than 50. The good news is that these are the exact same, and not surprisingly, the exact same sweetness levels and almost the exact same terminology you'll find in champagne. Except in champagne, you would call semi-sec demi-sec, and you would call dolce douce, or du, D-O-U-X. So sweet wines, although they used to be all the rage, are really out of favor, and dry wines are in. Brut Nature, Extra Brut are really now the most popular styles of wine across the board, not just for Cava, but for sparkling wines everywhere. And I think I'm going to call it. I think that's all you need to know about Cava. You have two parts, lots of info. Uh, if there's something that I forgot, you can message me and you can let me know. But I think that this was pretty comprehensive. This, um, like almost an hour and 20 minutes of me just, I mean, if you put both episodes together, about an hour and 20 minutes of me just like rattling on, going on about Kava. Um, and this is the part that I tell you where if I did forget something, how you can get in touch with me. But before I tell you that, I'm going to ask you, oh, so gratefully, just to scroll down uh, leave a review, leave a rating, write something, five stars, please, um, because this podcast is entirely independent. I write, uh, record, and edit all the episodes myself. Uh, so if you like what I'm doing, if you learned something today, that goes a long way to showing me that uh, you enjoyed the show. Uh, you can absolutely get in touch with me on Instagram at Housewine Podcast or my personal Instagram at Rachel Picard. And that's Rachel with an A-E-L, Picard like the captain. And you can also email this podcast at housewinepodcast at gmail.com. I love to take requests. I also love to hear from you guys. So go out. I know we're in the doldrums of winter and everyone's like drinking like big heavy reds. But, you know, why not have some kava? Why not have something cheap and cheerful? Why not have something fun? It doesn't have to be cheap and cheerful. You could hunt down a Cava Reserva. You could get something that's been aged on its lees for like over 30 months for like $30. It's There's such good value in Cava. I cannot recommend enough. So check it out. Enjoy. I will potentially be back next week. Potentially move to a uh, bi-weekly format. I have to sort of like sit down, write a bunch of episodes and figure out where my where my head's at. We've got some fun stuff coming up. Cypress. Cypress is in there. Armagnac is coming up. And I will see you guys soon. All right. Bye. <laughs>